Hello, Galactic Castaways. This is Alpha Control, the podcast about Irwin Allen's classic sci-fi adventure TV series, Lost in Space. I am your mission controller for this podcast, Colonel Lane August, and I'm joined by my trusty co-controller, Dr. Kurt Kersteiner. Kurt and I are old college chums, children of the 1960s, and most importantly, big fans of Lost in Space. Welcome aboard as we blast off together to celebrate Erwin Allen's Lost in Space. Now, let's get ready to launch. Welcome back, folks, for a special episode of Alpha Control, a Lost in Space podcast. Today, I'm flying the Jupiter 2 solo without my trusty co-host, Kurt, but that's because we have a very special guest to interview, sci-fi fantasy master modeler, Mr. Mark Myers. Mark is a tremendously gifted and prolific scale model builder who is widely recognized in both the professional modeler world as well as the sci-fi fan community. Many of his gorgeous creations have been the subject of numerous articles for modeling publications such as Hobby Merchandiser, Fine Scale Modeler, Amazing Figure Modeler, and Sci-Fi and Fantasy Modeler. During the course of his over 40-year career as a professional model builder, he's produced scores of stunningly crafted scale vehicles and figures across the wide range of sci-fi film and TV properties including Star Trek, Star Wars, Space 1999, and of course, the fantasy worlds of Irwin Allen TV series, among others. Mark is particularly well known to the Lost in Space fan community for his beautiful 135th scale Jupiter 2 model buildups, regarded as among the most realistic renditions of the famous Mobius model kit. A photograph of Mark's personal Jupiter 2 model is featured on that kit's box art. In addition, a photograph of his 1/350th scale derelict kit is featured on the box art for that Mobius kit as well, a distinction putting him in the elite class of master scale model builders. First, before we speak with him, a little background on Mr. Myers. Mark grew up in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, and currently resides in nearby New Jersey. Since becoming a full-time professional model builder, Mark established his own commission builder service called The Third Models. Mark's passion for sci-fi scale modeling was in part fueled by his admiration for the Hollywood craftsmen and special effects artists who built and photographed the original miniatures used to make many classic films and television shows before the age of CGI. His interests in traditional miniature photography inspired Mark to research and study the techniques that those pioneers used to make those memorable effect shots. As such, Mark has become an expert on the subject and is particularly well-versed in how the models from Lost in Space and other Irwin Allen TV shows were constructed and filmed. Mark has become renowned in the fan community for using his knowledge of those methods to produce and post online numerous fascinating video recreations of classic Lost in Space FX sequences using his personal Jupiter 2 model following the classic techniques. 
We're going to speak with Mr. Myers today about his connections with Lost in Space, his professional model building career, and get some behind the scenes information on how the original special effects were executed for Lost in Space and other Irwin Allen TV series. Now sit back and enjoy this compelling and informative interview with famed Lost in Space pro modeler and special effects expert, Mr. Mark Myers. Mr. Mark Myers, sir, welcome to Alpha Control. It's a pleasure to have you on our podcast celebrating Erwin Allen's original Lost in Space. I am deeply humbled to be here, sir. Truly an honor. <laughs> well, it's an honor for us because uh, you are well known in the Lost in Space fan community for your gorgeous Jupiter 2 model builds, among many others, of course, and the fascinating video recreations of classic special effect shots from the show that you publish. I've seen your work on several of the Facebook groups. And then I followed you and your business page, The Third Models, on Facebook. So I'm really fascinated with your models. They are great. Oh, I appreciate that. Yes, I uh, I am really humbled that there's a lot of folks out there that like this stuff as much as I do. And uh, uh, it's definitely uh, a passion of mine, recreating this stuff uh, that I grew up with. Again, it's... Uh, it's it's really humbling to be here and and have someone actually interested in this kind of stuff. <laughs> oh. oh well, man, you, there are a lot of Lost in Space fans out there that are also Mark Myers fans. So I tell you, I'm told by people that have seen or own one of your builds that as cool as they appear online, seeing them in person is something else entirely different. They're really dazzling. So I'm hoping I get the chance to do that as well. But uh, we'll we'll talk about that later, maybe. Okay. Uh, yeah. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> so we're gonna talk about your modeling and i want to pick your brain about all that classic special effects technique stuff that you did research on and and everything but i kind of want to start where i do with all the guests that come on the show and ask you first of all what was your first experience with the lost in space tv show and what did it uh, represent to you well i i grew up watching the uh the reruns of lost in space and Initially, it started, we, they were showing the black and white episodes, but then for some unknown reason, I guess because they figured black and white was, was not up to snuff or on the par or whatever, they, were, they just showed the second and third season. So I was always a Lost in Space fan, and, and as a kid, uh, I remember those early black and white episodes being kind of scary. Mm. almost mm -hmm. some of them of course the second and third season um you know there's there's some good uh there's some good episodes in the third season and whatnot but uh, the first season was always something that i enjoyed uh, as a kid so flash forward many years and i i had to work a night shift and i was coming in at wee hours in the morning and uh, our local tv station had lost in space on at four thirty in the morning mm. uh it was part of a yeah, it was part of an all-night-long type of thing where they would show uh, late movies, and then Lost in Space would come on. So I walk in the door, and here it's the black and white episodes. Mm. So I just started, I just started taping them, and I became a fan all over again. It was because I haven't seen these; they weren't broadcast on television for a long time. And uh, watching the black and white episodes and the, the cinematography and the effects. Uh, it just brought me back into the to Lost in Space fold again. To this day, I'm a I'm a huge fan. We're very lucky that we have so many different ways to watch Lost in Space now, especially with the Blu-ray sets. That's that's a real advantage. Oh yeah, big thanks to Kevin Burns for making that happen because we can 
for artists and, and modelers alike, and even just the casual fan, you get to see all the detail and uh, the cinematography and uh, the wonderful painting and uh, art direction the show had. It mm-hmm. really was. It was really something. I mean, it, we're talking about it, what, 50-something years later. So they did do something right back then. Oh, they sure did. Well, let's bring it back to the early days, though. So we're about the same age, I think. So I wanted to ask you, how early did you start building models? I was around, let's say, I was around six or eight, eight years old when I started building models. And uh, the, the enjoyment has hasn't stopped since Mm. i'm 53 now so yeah (laughs) it's been a been a long journey and a long learning journey because i i'm still learning how to do things and and tweak things and paint and everything associated with it so yeah it was a kid yeah kid when it all started yeah well i'm jealous uh you you still get to do it you still get to do it and you're uh you're doing it as a profession which is cool too so were you exclusively building sci-fi models as a kid or were you into other types of kits as well well i you know i have to say i built tanks uh armor i built airplanes and um and stuff like that and i'm a big fan of submarines which mm-hmm. Uh, you know, went into the sea view, of course, another Irwin Allen, I've wished to the bottom of the sea. I love the sea view. So, but, and uh, the Nautilus from 20,000 leagues under the sea. Yeah. But yeah, uh, primarily though, I started with uh, a science fiction based TV models and whatnot. They kind of captured my imagination when I was a kid. Mm. In fact, how I really got started in it was uh, I had been visiting some relatives and uh, a cousin of mine, he, he was a modeler and he built all kinds of subject matter, tanks and, and planes. And uh, he used to get he used to get upset when I came over because I would take his, his models apart and, <laughs> and he, he wasn't too thrilled with it. But he was a great guy. And on one visit, he, he had my father and I come up and take a look at his his models. And up there was uh, the uh, the original Aurora Lost in Space. Cyclops kit with I don't oh, know yeah. if you're familiar with oh yeah, yeah with yeah. the Cyclops throwing the boulders down yeah. at the Robinson. Mm-hmm. So I was in I never saw that kit before and I was enthralled with it and I was like wow wow. So he he saw me drooling I guess and you know being a good cousin he handed it to me and said here you can have it. I, I, I was over, I was over the moon at that point. I had this model. Mm-hmm. He also had an, a model of the USS Enterprise from Star Trek there, and uh, he wasn't going to give me that one. How it uh, worked out is uh, uh, my parents went out and they bought me the model. Is it the old yeah, AMT kit? Yeah, the old AMT kit, right. So yeah. I had my Cyclops that was built and painted that I played with when I was a kid, attacking the Robinsons and whatnot, and wishing there was a Jupiter II model. Uh, never transpired back then, but we'll, I guess we'll get into that a little later. But the other kit was, like I said, the Enterprise, and um, what had happened is my parents had purchased it for me and uh, my father god bless him was not a modeler now the original release of that kit had a lighting unit in it if you could call it that basically what it was was two bulbs uh one in the top and one on the bottom of the saucer where the uh, bridge was and the, where the um the lower planetary sensor dome was oh. and so my father's threading this thing for hours and he he had uh, got uh, called away because there was uh, a phone call for him or something so i sat there and i yanked all these wires out of there <laughs> I, I sat down and i said i don't want to, i don't want it to light up i don't want it to he came back he was oh no I sp-. it's you know it was just it was heartbreaking now that i think about all that 
all that time. Suffice it to say, from then on, I was building my own models. Yeah. It was on me to build my models. So. And you just brought back some memories to me because I built that uh, AMT kit too when I was a kid. I think I must have been like 10 or 12 or something like that. I can't remember exactly how old it was. The, the hardest part of that kit was the part where you had attached the pylons to the secondary fuselage down there, the secondary hull. And oh, I, yeah. I put so much glue on there that I basically melted it and those pylons just sagged. And I, and I was like... <laughs> I was so despondent. My dad went to the store and got me a whole nother kit, you know, and and he helped me rebuild it back together. I said, don't use too much glue. It's like, because I thought, oh my God, I've ruined it. But that was was a tricky little part of that kit. Yes, it was. Yeah, I I think all guys in our age bracket, you know, we, we all cut our teeth on that AMT kit. Mm-hmm. Because it was such, I mean, I've had dozens of them over the years. And uh, yeah, that, that was the one that, that forced me into building my own kit. But yeah, uh, yeah I could see, I could foresee the uh, too much glue on the, uh, and the cells and bending them and they're warping and they're flopping in the. Uh, it, was, <laughs> it was not impressive, but uh, you know, it brings, yeah. it brings up a good point because we remember those kits, the Aurora kits from Lost in Space and, and the AMT kits for the Star Trek show. Those were great. But you know, when I compare what we had back Back then and what we have today, to me, it seems like the model kit industry and model building is a lot different than it was when you and I were doing that as kids. What Can you describe for the listeners a little bit how much different the scene is today? It's As far as accuracy and uh, how the kits go together, it's improved by leaps and bounds, definitely. There's a, a company called Bandai that produces these Star Wars kits, and uh, they recently released a 172nd Millennium Falcon kit that is perfectly dead on to the five foot filming model that was used in star Wars as it was seen back in 1977. Mm. It's beautiful. And, uh, there's also uh, polar lights has, uh, released, uh, a new one three fifty enterprise, which is, which is amazing. They're coming out with the, the Klingon battle cruiser from the film. And, uh, they've released the Eagle from space 1999, which is an amazing kit. Uh, mm. and of course, Mobius, uh, if it wasn't for Mobius, Kevin Burns, and um, Frank Winsper, who was the, the visionary, if you will, at Mobius, who brought us these Irwin Allen kits that we have today that none of us, I mean, me for one, I'd never thought we'd ever see, that they'd ever see the light of day. You know, it, it, we all have them in our collection because of Frank and Kevin giving uh, uh, Frank the rights to the merchandise, and, and uh, we've gotten some really stellar stuff that I I never thought we'd see. We, we got a 39-inch sea view. We got a, a 132nd flying sub. We got the Jupiter 2. We got a, a 1-6 robot. Oh, yeah. there's, it's really, I mean, for Irwin Allen fans like us, this is like Christmas. I mean, for me, it is anyway. I, oh, I love yeah. this stuff. It absolutely is. And, you know, that was one of the frustrating things I remember as a kid, wanting that uh, Jupiter 2, and they never built the kit about it. So I did want to ask you just a couple more questions along the way. So how long was it before you actually went from just doing it for your fun and for yourself until you decided, hey, I can I can start turning pro and build these models uh, for clients? Well, that kind of happened. Uh, it was a funny way it happened, I should say. To, to rephrase it, uh, I actually built all the time. And then as I've, I've gotten older, I actually sold some kits to my friends. They would take an interest in a kit. And I, I was like, eh, you know, I could use 20 bucks. 
So I would sell the kid. I would sell them the model, and you know, I get my twenty bucks. I'm like, huh? I didn't think anybody'd be interested in this. Mm-hmm. And and then through the internet and the uh, and the World Wide Web, I was able to uh, people started seeing my stuff, and because uh, I would post pictures uh, on the web, and uh, can you build me one? I'm like, okay, sure, and mm-hmm. and that's how it took off. That's kind of how it took off. You know, today you can't swing a dead cat today without hitting somebody who's supposedly a pro modeler, but. The cream of the, the crop rises to the top, uh, and the rest of them because you got to be careful out there. I mean, uh, you just can't. It, it's not like we were kids when you could just glue two pieces of plastic together. You have to have some inherent knowledge of of lighting and uh, and weathering and all this stuff are art forms unto themselves. It's not right. just slapping the kit together. You know, I've been lucky. The clients that I have, they let me do my work. They let me run with the ball because they like what I produce. They want the stuff to look like the actual, if it's a model of a spaceship, uh, they want it to look like uh, what the miniature looked like. A lot of them are realist, which is fine. I mean, some guys would rather build a spaceship like it's a real spaceship, and that's okay. That's the fun of modeling. But me, I'm kind of boring, and I wish I could be that way sometimes, but I usually build my stuff to reflect the actual filming miniatures. Mm-hmm. I, I, that's what I like. Mm-hmm. I've been lucky enough to have clients that of the same mindset. Uh, in fact, I'm doing a Seaview right now, a Mobius 39-inch Seaview, a TV version. The gentleman, he wants it weathered and everything like I do. He doesn't want to paint it just the light gray or because that's not how the boat was. It was uh, all different colors and, and, and weathering, but it has to be done to scale to make it look right. So sure. I've been fortunate in that respect where I've... I've gotten uh, clients that appreciate the same way of going about this as I do. Well, as you mentioned, it's not just slapping a kit together with glue. There's all sorts of techniques and skills that you have to have painting, wiring now, because many of these kits are coming with add-on lighting kits to go with them and things like this or sound effects. And I mean, it's just amazing what's out there. And I guess for lack of a better word, most of this is not something you learn going to school, right? It's something that you graduate from the school of experience to get where to the level that you're at. Would that be a fair statement? Yes, that's exactly a fair statement. And there are a lot of guys that I've learned from uh, mm. and uh, emulate. One of them is a dear friend, Ron Gross, who uh, he's an artist and he's a, he was a builder. And oh, yeah. Jupiter 2, for example, back in the early 80s, 90s, uh, there were no Irwin Allen kits to be found other than those produced by this uh, garage company called Lunar Models. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you've... you've I remember them. Yep. Okay. Well, Lunar put out kits that no one else did. Everybody else was putting out Star Trek and Star Wars, which was fine because I loved all that stuff too. I'm I'm not a I'm not pigeonholed into one, you know, one like or the other. I, I could pick and choose stuff from all kinds of sci fi and all kinds of modeling. Anyhow, so I uh, Ron Gross had produced this masterful, I think it's a ten inch replica of the Jupiter two and how I came across it was uh, my local hobby shop had a, uh, the magazine uh, that, that Ron had uh, written an article for, uh, Scale Modeler magazine, I think it was called. And okay. on the cover was this Jupiter two. And I saw it, and I was like, whoa, that can't be. Now, I'm not bashing Lunar for, for any, because you know what? They did what they could at the time with all the reference material they could, and they paved the way in a way mm-hmm. that showing that, yeah, there is an interest in uh, the Irwin Allen uh, worlds. But this Jupiter II was perfect. It, it looked like the filming miniature that I wanted. Mm-hmm. From that issue and onward, that's what I wanted. I didn't care about an interior. I didn't care about any of that, because I knew at this point that the interiors didn't jive with the film 
filming miniature and none of that made sense, but that didn't bother me. I, I'm not looking to, uh, it's pretend, it's the fantasy world, the fantasy world of Erwin Allen. I sure. mean, everybody beats up Erwin saying that, wow, that Jupiter 2 couldn't have fit. How does it fit three decks? It's imagination. That's how you fit three decks in there. Right. It's, a, it's a TV show. It's not real. Yeah. Right. So when I saw Ron's Jupiter 2, that started me kind of on a journey to eventually have a version of the ship that I grew up with loving for my very own. So uh, he's one of the artists that, you know, that I looked up to. And then uh, actually Ron and I became friends. Mm. You know, I reached out to him. We became friends. We started talking because uh, our mutual appreciation and love of all the Irwin Allen stuff. Yeah, he's a great guy. He really is. So a lot of people, as we said before, do build plastic model kits and have over the years, but very few reach your level. So can you give us just a short thumbnail sketch of what your process is like from start to finish where before you even open the box until it's finished and is there a difference between building a model for yourself versus building it for a client well not really um when i and this is going to sound corny and hokey but uh, it's true it's uh, and i've maintained this level of professionalism since i started doing this i'll build a model for myself and throw the same amount of enthusiasm and research into a build for a client because I imagine myself on the other end of this, someone wanting a Jupiter II since they were a kid and finally getting it. I want them to be as as excited about when they open the box and they they got all the bells and whistles that they requested, everything works and the paint's perfect and the lighting's perfect. That means I'm a success at what I'm doing. And and I strive to keep that. When it comes to client builds, I may go a little further because I've learned on my own builds. My own builds become like prototypes. So uh, if I do something different that no one else is doing, I'll learn that on my own and I'll work out all the bugs. And then that way, when I get a client build, it's easier for me to add other effects and uh, other things to it. But the big thing I could say and recommend to uh, guys who want to build or girls uh, is to research and have the passion for it. You got to have a passion for it, whatever the subject matter is. It doesn't matter if it's spaceships or if it's a tank, if it's an airplane, you got to have a passion for it. So for the Jupiter 2, the big thing, the first thing you want to do is research. That's one of the funnest parts for me is doing the research on, on a particular build, or the Enterprise, or, or the Chariot, or the Space Pod, or the Flying Sub. But the Jupiter 2, you do some research, and you, and you find out things about, okay, how was the miniature, how was it colored? Is it silver? Well, not really. Uh, it was uh, a dull aluminum. I mean, if it was bright silver, then it would reflect the camera lighting and everything else uh, right. as it was being filmed. But you have to see that. That's why I say I'm boring because I I try and keep the the subject matter to look like what it's supposed to be, not what I think it should be. Or because there's a thousand different interpretations of how uh, a model would look or a miniature would look, depending on what TV you watched it on, what time of the year you watched it on, what station you watched it on, that kind of thing. You know, some guys want to build it just to have it look like a real spaceship, and, and that's fine. You know, when I build these things, that's why I was so appreciative that uh, Bandai, and I brought out this, because uh, I'm a big, huge Star Wars fan as, as well, and I think Star Wars owes a lot to Irwin Allen. Uh, we oh, can yeah. get into that later, but there's a lot of connections there. But the original Star Wars, I'm talking about the film as it was released in 1977, not with all the edits, and not uh, New Hope, and uh, I, those guys marveled me with their miniature work and, and everything, and, and the recent release of this Millennium Falcon was is soup to nuts, a perfect copy of that miniature. That's how I go about it. And and with the research also goes, all right, lighting. Lighting's a big factor today. Mm-hmm. And lighting is an art form unto itself. 
scale lighting. I stress that a lot in my posts, in my builds, and uh, articles that I've written for for different sci-fi magazines. Scale lighting. Now, what does that mean? That means you don't want the lighting to be overblown, where the fact that when you turn the lights on, you need a pair of welder's goggles to look at your model. (laughs) Right. Then you're doing something wrong. But having said that, there are guys out there who are fans of that kind of lighting. Hey, look, if if that's what you like, that's fine. But for me, I try and keep it as uh, realistic as possible and the lighting as realistic as possible. The lighting on the on the miniatures in Lost in Space were subtle. They were not overblown. If you look at some of the effects footage, especially especially the um, the extra features that, that we get with the Blu-ray and the episodes themselves on Blu-ray, you'll see that the Jupiter 2 is interior. There wasn't any interior in there. It was a practical interior, they called it, and they used, you know, a, a faux background, which was like a milky white with uh, some uh, some lines crisscrossing and some very, very, very crude figures. Mm-hmm. But when you pull it all together and you film it, it looks real. But the lighting wasn't overblown. You, you know, you shouldn't, again, uh, you shouldn't have to wear your shades to look at the interior or the, the rotating light underneath the engine lighting. Right. Uh, Right. Well, it shouldn't strobe you into the fact where you, you can't see it. You can't watch it. Just watch the episode. You'll see that the lighting was very subtle because of the scale of the model. And the same thing with the Enterprise and Star Trek. That's why those guys are like heroes to me. And for Irwin Allen, uh, L.B. Abbott and the Lidecker yeah. brothers, they were just phenomenal. Just well, phenomenal. Well, let's, uh, you've already alluded to it, so let's do a little bit more in-depth look at your personal Jupiter 2 model, because you did make some very specific choices in the way that you detailed it. So tell us about that kit and then the choices that you made, because yours is really great. Oh, I appreciate that. Yeah, That was a long, long, hard uh, journey to get that to where it is, and it still, it still is. Basically, uh, it started with the Mobius 18-inch diameter, one 35th kit. Now, it's a beautiful kit. It comes with a full interior. Now, the thing was with the kit, they consolidated the exterior of the ship, which was the four-foot hero miniature, with the interior of the full-size set. And to quote the robot, it doesn't compute. That always bothered me. Although it looks fantastic, it looks beautiful. I built a number of versions like that and lit them and, and, and whatnot for clients. And it looks just tremendous. Now, again, myself being the boring sort of fellow that I am, I just wanted that version of the hero that I saw coming into the derelict, which is the second episode of the first season, where you see the Jupiter 2 being drawn into the derelict ship. Right. You see it coming in at a slow speed, and it, it looks like it has weight, and it comes in, and then it, the, the gear extends, and they give you a nice close-up of the, the engine core. The gear comes down, and then it settles, and it looks like it has some kind of shock absorbers in there as the ship finally rests on the weight of the landing gear. That's what I wanted. Mm. So what I did was, I, after building all these kits for other people, I, I just sat back one day and said, you know what, I, I want to do this for myself. So I took some time to, for myself, and uh, using parts I had from other builds that I had done for others, uh, I started putting together my ultimate, for me, Jupiter 2. And the first thing was that the exterior hatch on the Jupiter 2 miniature, there was no exterior hatch there. That blows me so, away. I never noticed that yeah. before. <laughs> No hatch at all? (laughs) No hatch at all. No hatch at all. So that was the first thing that I needed to change up. Uh, And I also liked the rotating scanner in the upper bubble. Now, it's been kind of replicated with the lighting kits that are available to put a series of LEDs that flash either on and off or in a circular pattern. 
but that's not what was in the original. The original didn't have any lights at all up there. It just was a scanner that spun around. And what had happened is that the, the, the metallic feature of the scanner reflected the exterior lighting and the lighting coming from within the miniature. Mm. So I wanted to keep that. And I wanted to keep it pure. So that was the other thing. So the first thing is I filled in the hatch with some sheet styrene. And then I, then I uh, using my uh, filler, uh, an epoxy, I filled in the gap and I sanded it super smooth. So now there's no hatch. And uh, the next step was to devise a method of uh, having uh, the upper bubble scanner spin. So mm. looking at some pictures and uh, and using uh, the Blu-ray, thank God for the Blu-ray, and looking at what was actually in there, I came up with what I thought was what the scanner looked like. Bill Hedges is a, is a really great guy, and he's done a ton of research. He built his own four-footer, and he, he's pretty much got that running just like the miniature, too. And Lou Place, the, these guys were, uh, they built their own four-footers. Now, mm-hmm. I want a four-footer, too, but I don't think my wife would allow me to have that. <laughs> I, me and the four-footer will be out in the shed, I think. For now, I have to be satisfied with an 18-inch model. After I decided to, to make the bubble spin, I, you know, I got these motors that you can find on uh, eBay and some electronic stores have them, but I got mine from eBay and they rotate at a certain speed. I was able to fabricate that uh, scanner to spin. So now I'm looking at the, the fusion core and I had one of those lighting kits that are available inside there and it was totally wrong and it was driving me nuts. When you say wrong, I'm sorry to interrupt you, but you just mean that the pattern of the lights as they're spinning around on that fusion core didn't quite match the way that the original miniature lights spun around. Is that, am I getting that right? Yeah, that's a fair statement. Through my research, this is how the original fusion core worked on the four footer. There were six lights like on a little motor, they were 60 degrees apart and they spun. Mm-hmm. And to get that effect, and there's like a ghost effect. If you look at uh, the close-up footage from the derelict episode, you could see that effect cannot be replicated unless you do it the same way. You put LEDs in there and it blows it out and it's way too bright. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's actually some darkness in there in between spins that give the illusion that there's a motor, uh, some kind of futuristic motor, and the, the, this power source is spinning underneath there. Wow. I, again, you got to give it to uh, uh, L.B. Abbott and the, and the Fox artisans back then to, to come up with this stuff. Uh, I wanted to purchase something like that. I didn't want to make it myself. So I, I reached out to a couple vendors that are, are pretty well known, and they all told me, no, you can't do six lights. Uh, it's got to be eight lights on an LED board because six lights won't work. And, and I'm like, finally, I just said, you know what? I'm just going to do it the same way they did it. <laughs> and through a series of uh, failures and, uh, and successes, I, I, I nailed it. It's driven by a motor. There's six lights that spin. I tied both uh, the motor, the lighting from the fusion core into the, uh, the spinning scanner. They're both tied into the same potentiometer, so they both can spin at variable rates. They could spin faster, they could spin slower, and to whatever way I want, to whatever speed I want. That comes in handy when I replicate my little movies that you alluded to early in our conversation. Yeah, well, when you see the movies that you've produced and posted online, it's breathtaking because I I would swear I'm looking at shots from the Blu-ray of the original miniature. It's just in every detail. But you went to such effort, like taking out the hatch, something I never noticed. That's what sells the illusion. You you think you're looking at the original miniature. Now, does yours have the landing gear also? Yeah, at this point, I'm of course the ultimate Jupiter two will be when I can have the landing gear uh, raise and actually support the weight of the model. 
which will be a step above the actual filming model because although it had retractable landing gear, the landing gear on the four-foot hero miniature could not sustain the weight of the model. It was more like a marionette. Right. You could actually, um, <laughs> if you look at the, uh, the Blu-ray special effects outtakes that were so graciously given to us by Kevin Burns, you could see in a couple... Where, where the Jupiter 2 is landing in that yellow circle from the ghost planet. Yeah, you could see it, and they, there's multiple takes, and uh, sometimes it leans to the left, sometimes it leans to the right, and then they finally get it, and it looks fantastic. Mm-hmm. Once I get that done, and I've already started working on it, but that's got to take a back seat now to the client builds because they, they take my priority. And uh, But that's okay because then uh, once I get the passion for it, which is what I did with the lighting for the fusion core, there's not going to be anything stopping me, and I, won't, I will uh, work day and night until I get it perfect. And then it will do what it's supposed to do. (laughs) Your model is sort of the iconic model because it's actually featured on the box art for the kid, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, that's that was pretty cool how that happened. Um, I have a friend of mine named uh, Jeff Summers. Jeff and I have collaborated on a number of things, and and one of the first things was the Jupiter Two. Jeff's a graphic artist. What had happened is I I took these pictures of my Jupiter Two and I and I sent them to Jeff, and he put it in this planetary uh, landing uh, scene. And I sent them to Frank Winsper. I said, Frank, if you need these or if you like these, and he was he liked them, you know, he was like very excited with them. And he said, Yeah, I'll see what I can do. So flash forward maybe a year later. Now the model's not on the original release box, it's on the second release box. Mm-hmm. And it's on the back. And it's also the image is also on the lighting kit. Uh, mm-hmm. It's on the back and it's in the instruction sheet. And Frank wrote me and said that uh, Kevin himself picked that image out and loved it. Mm. So they used it on the back of the box, and they used it in the lighting kit and the lighting kit instruction sheet. So that was Jeff and I were over the over the moon when that happened. That was amazing because we're both Irwin Allen fans, and yeah, uh, that was real. That was really cool. And then um, that's a great tip uh, of the hat. <laughs> oh yeah, I, well yeah, it's it's really nice to to have your work recognized, and it, and, and it happened such a uh, you know casual manner. And then. Uh, I, I asked Frank, I reached out to Frank because I knew he was doing the derelict from Lost in Space, which is from the second episode, if I could do the build-up. Before I know it, I, I did the build-up for it. I did the photography for it. And it's on the back, again, it's on the back of the box. It's in the, I think it's in the instruction sheet too, but on the cover you have the beautiful artwork from John Eves. So I was kind of a, a nice uh, feather because I'm there with John Eves and mm. kind of a feather for me with the Jupiter too because that's uh, that was Ron Gross did the original artwork for that, and they kind of used a different version of Ron's artwork on the cover. So it was, I often uh, kid Ron that uh, he's on the front and I'm on the back of the box. So that, that was kind of cool, too. <laughs> That's very cool. Let's switch gears for a second since you bring up the four-foot hero miniature. As you said, you based your personal Jupiter 2 build use the four-foot miniature as your guide. That brings up a whole host of questions because, again, you said it's all about the research. And apparently, you did a lot of research on the original miniatures, including how they were filmed. Not only how they were built, but how they were filmed. Originally, the Jupiter 2 was not called the Jupiter 2, right? For the unaired pilot, it was something different. That's correct. The original Jupiter 2 was the Gemini 12, and most Lost in Space fans know that. But I didn't know that until the mid-80s that it was the Gemini 12 when I saw a, a copy of the unaired pilot. But the, the spaceship was called the Gemini 12. It, it was the work of uh, William Krieber over at Fox. The art and, director. Uh, yeah. The art director, correct. 
and this may be, this is going to sound like blasphemy, but I always preferred the Gemini 12 hull profile over that of the Jupiter 2. How, how is it different from the Jupiter 2? It, well, it's first of all, there's no pretense of any other decks. It's a one-deck vehicle. It has a larger, uh, what we've come to be calling a fusion core. I don't know if I don't know where that came from, but uh, the engine core, fusion core, whatever you want to call it. It has a larger fusion core and has the fins that radiate around the fusion core. There's no landing gear. Mm. Uh, the viewport is much, much bigger. Uh, there's no, again, there's no Dr. Smith or robot. So there was no pretense about it being anything more than what it was in the pilot, which was a single level craft that was supposed to take the Robinsons to Alpha Centauri where they would, you know, they would pioneer this planet. And the Jupiter 2 was supposed to be like a home for them. That was going to be the home. The original premise was that once the, the ship landed, it was going to be discarded. The family's adventures would take place in the chariot as, the, as they traveled and traversed the whole planet. Mm-hmm. That was the major difference. But then they actually filmed quite a bit of amazing special effect shots with that Gemini 12 miniature, didn't they? Yes, they did. And every Lost in Space fan to this day thrills at that. There's scenes where they took it out to the pinnacles out there in the desert in California, and they, and they flew it on two wires. They call it the Lidecker effect, uh, whereas two wires on either side of the viewport uh, there was like a, a tubing in there where the wires would go through and they would uh, send the electricity through the wires as the ship was going down to make the engine spin and, and the little scanner, which was a little different on the Gemini 12 than it is on the Jupiter 2. Mm. And to this day, to this day, that footage still holds up to me. That is one of the most extraordinary, visually beautiful visual effects done anytime, anywhere that has been done. <laughs> yeah, it's gorgeous. It really is. Yeah, they did it in, in the out in the natural surroundings, bright sunlight. They had a, a fog machine going or something to give it that eerie effect. But it looked real. It looks like a real ship crashing. Of course, they they utilized that footage throughout the series whenever the Jupiter two landed on a new planet or crashed on a new planet, or whatever. That's that's the footage they used. But yeah, the Gemini twelve was uh, that was that's where it was utilized. That's also the ship you see take off from the pilot episode off of the launch gantry at Alpha Control. That's the Gemini twelve, not the Jupiter two. Right. Oh, there's no lower deck viewport either. I should point out. Right. Like I said, there's no pretense of a lower deck. Right. They were wise enough to film that stuff out in the desert in color, and that allowed them to use it in the later color seasons, which was good. Yep. And that was a four-foot model as well, right? That's correct. It was a four-foot model. We knew where the four-foot Jupiter II was, We or a couple Jupiter IIs. There was no talk about the Gemini 12. Now, as I had said earlier, that was my favorite hull profile. And uh, I know it went up for auction sometime back in... I don't know, the 80s or 90s, I'm not sure exactly, so bear with me there. But I did some detective work, and I wanted to find out who owned the miniature because I wanted to take on the task of restoring it myself. Doing a little bit of legwork and detective work, I found out that it was purchased by a gentleman by the name of Andre Dant. I reached out to Andre, and we developed a friendship, and we started talking about it. But Andre lives out there in Southern California, and I'm here on the East Coast right outside of Philadelphia. The very fragile nature of the miniature would not do in shipping it to the East Coast. There were a number of holes cut into the sides of Gemini 12. Why? 
Well, Erwin Allen did a backdoor pilot called City Beneath the Sea, where he utilized all the Jupiter II miniatures and anything else. He had the flying sub in it, the sea view was in one scene, time tunnel stuff. He utilized all the props and stuff that he had laying around to try and push this new pilot called City Beneath the Sea. The Gemini 12, like its Jupiter II brothers, were utilized as buildings, futuristic underwater buildings. Mm. And they had their hull cut into for windows on the sides of the hull. Only miniature that wasn't, and we haven't mentioned this one uh, yet, was the 10-foot Jupiter II. The, the 10-footer had, I guess, gaffer's tape placed along the sides of the hull where, where the windows were supposed to be, but the, the four-footers were not fortunate. They had these windows cut in. So prior to this auction, uh, much prior to it, because they used the Gemini 12 in a, an episode of In Search Of back in the 70s that Leonard Nimoy used to narrate. I don't know mm. if you remember that oh, show. Oh, yes, In well, Search Of, yes. I love that show. It was a, <laughs> it was a great show, and, yeah. and they had an episode about a UFOs, and they had the Gemini 12 stuck in a sand pit or something. And what, what the guys at Fox, they did a real quick repair job where they filled it up with car repair stuff, uh, Bondo, oh, wow. and... And bondoed it up with the fiberglass and, and and got it to where it was presentable. And then they stuck it on this auction. They they had a real a shiny uh, uh, silver. And Andre was there, and it it didn't sell the first time. So he went again, and then it's he 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 was able to get it. It was so in such dilapidated condition. Uh, Andre had it for a number of years, and and it's, it degraded even further. I was part of that uh, video about the restoration of the, the Gemini 12 that Mike Clark produced. Paul Lubliner was the actual the guy who worked the magic on it, and Paul and I are friends, and he was the guy I reached out to uh, to get this repaired. I, I talked to Andre. I said, Andre, I know a, a, an artisan out there right where you are that will do this and give the miniature back its original condition. He won't scribe patches on there that won't that's not supposed to be there. He won't add this because he thinks it's supposed to be there. He'll return it to its original condition, which is what a, a real restoration is. And that's what happened. It went out to Paul, and Paul restored it to its former glory. And now Andre has it. It's beautiful again. Yeah. <laughs> Luckily, now we have the, the original Gemini 12 that started Lost in Space in its original condition. It yeah. looks great. It's beautiful. You sent me a link to that documentary that talks about the restoration, and I will link to that in the show notes for this episode as well. It is an amazing story. And if you watch it, you learn a lot of things about these miniatures. <laughs> I hope you're enjoying this fascinating interview with master sci-fi modeler and Lost in Space FX aficionado Mark Myers as much as I am. Mark's impressive work as a pro model builder is matched by his knowledge of classic miniature photography used in Lost in Space and other classic movies and films. He's got more to share about his pro modeling career, special effects, and much, much more. So sit tight for part two of our interview with sci-fi fantasy model builder, Mr. Mark Myers. Now, the Jupiter II models, the Gemini 12 model that we've been speaking about, were these built by the Fox Art Department? And do we know anything about the construction methods that they used? Yeah, they were built by the Fox Art Department. Those guys were... Uh first-class artisans and heroes to me, and primarily made out of fiberglass and wood and some vacuum-form features and stuff, but mostly fiberglass. Mm. And uh, they were built to hold up to daily filming. They weren't built to 
undergo scrutiny like uh, we have at uh, different uh, model functions like Wonderfest where people come up with a flashlight and look inside and <laughs> see if it's, you know, everything is right. copacetic. Uh, it was built to look good on camera only, and they did. They're not symmetrical. The Jupiter 2, the Hero Jupiter 2, and I call it the Hero because it's the one with the extending uh, landing gear. You could see in the footage, if you watch that Ghost Planet episode, that the whole seam is not where the top and bottom of the hull meet uh, to, as you're looking at it, on the left. There's a slight wave there. They weren't done perfect, but as we watched them on TV back, you know, when they were first broadcast, we thought these things were amazing. And that's not to discredit the the craftsmen and artsmen at, at Fox. They were on the deadlines. They had to get this done in, like days right. and and get this stuff working and, and and you know there were magicians as far as i'm concerned even the enterprise has flaws on it and the the millennium falcon has flaws on it. i mean everything all the miniatures and films they're not built to withstand the scrutiny of today's modelers they're not also built to last 50 years or more which is kind of makes the whole thing about restoring the gemini 12 interesting as well you know it's like they were exactly meant to do- fulfill a specific function for a limited period of time, and they did it beautifully. Of course, we as fans of the show and fans of special effects and models and everything, we salivate over all these details, and you especially, because you've you've used all this research to inform your pro model building and everything, and that I think that's awesome, <laughs> really. I mean, yeah, it's, it, it, it's a lot of fun that these guys... Uh, they provide subtle weathering to make the model look real. And uh, again, in some of those footage that we watch, especially Lost in Space, where it's some of the best uh, footage was from the pilot with the Gemini 12, but uh, that footage that they used in the derelict where the Jupiter 2 comes in and then escapes, that's really some good stuff. And even the landing on uh, the ghost planet was done really well. That's a nice that's real. But then, of course, you know, they. I guess they got pressed for time. You have some hokey effects where it looks like it's on a string and it bounces all around. And uh, I mean, you're going to get the good with the bad at this point. You know, same can be said about the sea view from Voyage to the Bottom of the Sea. Whenever they filmed the 17 foot, three inch, if you could call it a miniature, we'll call it the filming model. Whenever it was on the surface, that thing looked real. Mm-hmm. I mean, it looked absolutely real in some shots. Right. And, and the first season, which is uh, the, the, the best as far as I'm concerned as a voyage, I, I love all Irwin Allen stuff. I mean, even the hokey stuff, Carrot Rebellion, Carrot Rebellions, Vegetable Rebellions, even that I could find something in there <laughs> to watch. But uh, like in Voyage, the first season, like the first season of Lost in Space is, is the superior season. There's a, some, there's a scene where they have the sea view leaving uh, Pearl Harbor and you would swear that it was real. It's just a brief couple second shot, but it was done so well. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and even some underwater footage where they used the eight foot sea view, there's a shot of the sea view almost flying over the camera in this murky water and it looks real. It looks like, wow, that looks like a real submarine. And again, mm-hmm. you know, as these guys are pressed for time and uh, money constraints, some of it looks like it's just a toy in a, in a kid's bathtub or something, you know, but you take the good with the bad. Yeah. <laughs> So on the Jupiter 2 miniatures, how many of them did they actually build? Do we have any information on that? And what's the current status? How many are still in existence today? From my understanding, there's the, the Hero miniature, which is the, uh, the four-footer, which uh, had the landing gear ability. That mm-hmm. is, it's in, in private ownership. Then there's another Jupiter 2 four-footer, which was labeled the pod dropper because it was primarily used whenever we saw the little space pod 
mm-hmm. evacuating the Jupiter too. That's still in existence. And then we had the 10-footer, which was, thanks to Blu-ray, we could see that it, it was, because for, the, for a number of years it was said that it was never used, but it actually was used in background shots, in long-distance shots. Mm-hmm. So there's a 10-footer that is currently owned, I believe, by Mr. John Antonellis, who he recently rebuilt a chariot, right? Uh, which, which is amazing. If you haven't had a chance to see that, you, you have to see it. I had a chance to see it at a uh, chiller convention a number of years ago. So if you get a chance, go see that. That's amazing. There's the smaller, now here's another one that's debatable amongst lost in space fans and it's actually uh, it becomes heated sometimes uh that's how the passion runs with these guys uh, we don't know if it was the 12 inches in diameter uh or 10 inches in diameter or i, I don't know but it was the small one that we saw uh, in the episode wish upon a star where uh dr smith wishes for a brand new jupiter 2 and the wishing machine produces this little model that we all wish uh, including me we could have when we were kids right if you remember that episode, Absolutely. that little, uh, but that was, uh, th- that's got a little bit more history to it. That was actually, that is actually a Gemini 12 that they, that they refurbished into a Jupiter two. They added uh, a lower deck viewport onto that and they fixed the windows and it can also be seen coming into derelict right. and flying around the derelict. And it's also used in a lot of the long, uh, long shot scenes where you see the Jupiter two going down to a planet in the second season and third season where you'd see it going and which is all in shot photography. I mean, that's not a composite. It's a, it's a huge painting with this model coming down to the earth like planet, which you could clearly see when they show you in the, um, outtakes that were on the Blu-ray. Right. Yeah. That's so, pretty much it from, the, from my understanding. The smaller one though, is from what I understand, I think you were mentioning that to me earlier. We don't actually know what 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 happened to that one do we no no we don't know what happened to that one i mean it could be it could be anywhere someone may have it under their bed uh, or <laughs> someone may have it because fox was fox was throwing this stuff out you know it wasn't until fairly recently that the the studios realized that there's a big market for this stuff miniatures were regarded as once they were used they were disposable they weren't held on to they were thrown in the trash Mm-hmm. There's a number of stories where guys who actually started working in special effects would dumpster dive outside of Fox, and they would find uh, parts of sea views there, and uh, you know, and get this stuff together. Like the sea view suffered a terrible fate, the eight foot one. But uh, luckily, we have the seventeen seventy foot three inch sea view, which is in the Science Fiction Museum in Seattle, Washington, I think. But uh, the eight footer didn't. It suffered a terrible fate, and nobody knows where the rest of the the boat is. The the nose section was chopped off for another Irwin Allen backdoor pilot called the return of captain nemo i don't know if you remember that during the 80s it was a it was a pilot where Irwin allen wanted to do this tv series with burgess meredith as a villain and uh, jose ferrer as captain nemo uh. and they needed the submarine so he wanted to see you chopped up the eight footer to, to make it uh, into the nautilus uh they chopped the nose section of the sea view off and they put this horrendous looking, it looked like an eagle front onto it, and oh, it was just terrible. And they wound up not using it because it looked so ugly that they mm. eventually commissioned a, a, an original built, an original miniature built. The poor Seaview suffered that fate, the eight footer. You know, this stuff was just thrown, thrown out. It was just trash. It was, uh, okay, it's junk. You know, that kind of thing. That's terrible. That really kills you. And fortunately today, there's a better appreciation by the studios and the general public for what these miniatures are, because now they go on displays in museums and traveling shows. I've seen a couple of the Star Wars exhibitions where they had a lot of the filming miniatures 
even here in Chicago at the uh, Science and Industry Museum. That was a few years ago. And of course, we know about the restoration of the original Enterprise filming miniature at the Smithsonian Institution as well. So people appreciate these things. So it's a big change in the, the way these things are you know, viewed by the public as well. Uh, are there blueprints or records about the miniatures that, uh, that are surviving, like for the Jupiter II and so forth? Well, they're, they're blueprints. I should specify what blueprints. There are fan-produced blueprints, and there's the real blueprints. But the blueprints rarely match up. In other words, uh, we'll use the Jupiter II. The blueprint of the Jupiter II did not match up with the actual filming miniature. It had, it, like, the hull was uh, was was subtly different than what we finally got that the the artisans came up with. Mm. Uh, same thing with the sea view and the flying sub; they never really matched up. Like, uh, they were perfect matches to their blueprints. They're fun to look at to see what what these things originally were supposed to look like. Like the sea view again, uh, uh, going back, the sea view actually had twelve windows. We were familiar with the eight-window version of the first season of the show and the film, but it actually had 12 windows on it. That was shortened to eight windows when it became apparent that Irwin Allen didn't want to spend the money to build another set with all these windows on it, which is why the windows in the eight-window Seaview doesn't match up with the exterior version of it. So, uh, again, it's it's stuff that you pick up uh, later on in life as a kid. You're watching this, you think it's fantastic, but <laughs> it is the, the blueprints. It is. I mean, it's it, it, it to me, it's artwork. It's to, to make this stuff look real on film is an art form. And today, of course, we have CGI, pretty much everything CGI. Uh, the best of both worlds to me is when they incorporate a, a beautifully done miniature and then enhance it with CGI. It, it's been done in some films, but I think the CGI is uh, is a little cheaper and a lot quicker to do than, than handling miniatures. But again, going back to that original effect of Lost in Space where the Gemini 12 crashes or Jupiter 2, whatever you want to call it, and that pilot, uh, that still holds up. And that was done 50-something years ago. And if it's done right, it's just amazing. It is. And, uh, that's, well, what, that's what grabbed my imagination. Yeah. Me too. Well, you know, you already mentioned that you did some research on how they shot a lot of those scenes. And I think that's informed a lot of the videos that you've produced with your own Jupiter 2 model, where you're trying to recreate some of those special effects shots using some of the techniques that they did then. You mentioned earlier about the Lidecker method of flying the Jupiter 2, and they used it to fly a lot of things, airplanes, and it was used for the flying sub and everything. And as you mentioned, that's basically where they string two wires, and they have guide tubes for those wires built into the model. So the model basically is sliding along those wires. But for most of the scenes, you told me that with the Jupiter 2, they actually used a different type of a rig to fly it. And again, this is in-camera stuff. So can you describe that a little bit? Yeah, for the Jupiter 2, the four-foot Jupiter 2 hero, they used three wires uh, that suspended the uh, the miniature from a boom stand. That's how they flew it, and uh, that the wires provided the the power uh, for the lighting and uh, the interior lights and stuff. So whenever you see the, the Jupiter two coming into a planet where you, the, you see it landing, or like in the second season or third season, it comes and it does a hard landing. I say hard landing where it just like drops on the core. 
mm-hmm. or Ghost Planet's a good example. We'll use that since everyone loves that footage, including myself. I, I could watch that over and over again. That was used. There's the, the three wires. They go into the upper hull of the Jupiter 2 into the bottom of it, and they, uh, they suspend the miniature, and they, that's what gives you the effect of flight. They gently lower it down, and, uh, of course, they film it at a faster speed uh, than it's supposed to to give the model some weight. The way that works is, you know, the rule is that the camera speed should be the square root of the miniature scale. So, for example, we'll take the 18-foot Seaview, uh, which was built, I think, at 132nd scale. Uh, the film was run through the camera at 136 frames per second during the wow. filming process. When played back at the normal 24 frame per second, the slow motion effect gives the illusion that the boat is much bigger, that the waves are much bigger, that the Seaview is in excess of 600-plus feet. So that's how that's how they did it with the Jupiter two too. They they'd film it faster than they'd slow it down, and that gives you that feeling of weight that we were discussing earlier in the derelict, where you see the Jupiter two come in and she looks like she has some weight to it. You know, when she finally lands on her gear, it gives a soft depression there. Mm-hmm. So that's how they did it. I mean, uh, the Lideckers were and L.B. Abbott were amazing for what they did back then. They're, they're my heroes. They really are. What they did with this. They made this stuff real. They made it magical. They made it in camera most of the time. I mean, there's some composite footage of the Jupiter 2, uh, namely the uh, asteroid uh, asteroid scene from the pilot and where you see the asteroids hitting the hull of the Jupiter 2. You could see, you know, the tinfoil asteroids hitting. Sometimes you see the bleed through. So mm-hmm. they did use some composite work. But for the most part, it was all in camera, well, and then, you know, which is unheard of. Yeah, because everything looks like it's in really good focus. And I'm mystified how they were able to get such a beautiful star field effect from behind the models because it's it's very realistic. Well, I've done the same thing with my miniatures. If you uh, if you see my space footage, what what they did, LB Abbott did, was uh, on the studio wall there'd be a black curtain, totally black, and then four feet in front of that was a mesh type of black to give it some kind of dimension. And what he he used the word flitters, uh, and basically is is like uh, dust, uh, different color, uh, little sparkles that he would throw randomly. Onto the onto the mesh that would give the illusion of uh, of star fields and stuff. And when you pull the camera back, now when I first did this, after finding out how he did it, before I looked in my camera and did it myself, I was like, "That's impossible. That's not going to look right. That's going to look hokey." But when I did it and adjusted the lighting, it popped. I was like, "Oh my god, this is amazing! <laughs> this is I can't believe it. This effect is so real looking by just doing that. That's how they achieved it. They they they, they just threw the, the, this glitter stuff all over this mesh, stood back, and it popped. It looked like real a real space. It was amazing. Yeah, it has a real 3D effect to it. That kind of explains it. But you would never believe that it was something so simple, but it just is so beautiful. I love that that they did it all in camera like that. That's amazing. That's what's exciting to me too, it, especially." as a modeler it's, it's and a modeler on a budget i should say because <laughs> mm. i don't have the if i had a disposable income god knows what i could do with this stuff but <laughs> you know just to see what they did and appreciate what they did because they were on the time constraints and they had budget constraints and uh, it, it it is totally some of that stuff is totally believable again to this day of course you get the bum footage where the jupiter 2 looks like it's a a, a frisbee on a string and it, especially in that rockets where rockets are chasing it during the the escape from the ghost planet episode and mm. <laughs> but for the most part 
when those guys were able to do what they could do, it looked amazing. It really did. I agree with you. Well, you've already talked a little bit about the sea view. I wanted to shift gears just a little bit. And I know we're taking extra advantage of your time here. I'm sorry about that. But I wanted to ask oh, okay. you about a, about a couple other things. So the sea view, you already mentioned, I guess th there were two versions of that. Was it an 8-foot and a 17-foot? Yeah, primarily there was a 17-foot, uh, 3-inch sea view, which was used for all the surface action. Whenever you see the sea view on the surface, that's the 17-footer. It was also the miniature that launched the flying sub. Uh, and then you had the you had the eight-foot version, which did the lion's share of the filming. Uh, I don't want to call it the hero because the 17-footer was much better looking, in my opinion, than the eight-footer. The 17-footer had a shark-like appearance. It was more sleek looking. Uh, whereas the eight-footer had a bulbous nose, it, it kind of looked like it was pregnant almost to, mm. to some extent. I, I don't know if that makes any sense. But that was used in all the underwater footage that you saw where the monsters grabbed either side of the manta fins and started flipping it around and stuff like that. Then, of course, there was a four-footer, and I think there were two smaller sizes as well, uh, maybe a 12-incher that we used for long-distance shots and that kind of thing, but primarily the the, the ones that uh, that I'm interested in and, and most fans were were the big 17 foot Sea View and the eight footer. All right, so since we're talking about the Sea View, though, was that also a Bill Creeper design? Basically, what happened was uh, pre-production pre on uh, Voice of the Bottom of the Sea started in uh, I think around 1960. Fox's uh, supervising art director Jack Martin Smith. He became involved with the design of the Sea View, the mini sub, uh, the interior. Also, Herman Blumenthal, who was a staff artist, he became involved, and to some extent, L.B. Uh, Abbott, but also Irwin Allen. Irwin mm. Allen was involved in the original appearance of the Sea View. In fact, it was Irwin's suggestion uh, for the addition of the manta fins on either side of the of the boat because it was just a cylindrical-looking submarine. It just looked like a normal skipjack or something like that, and he said we need to make it different. Oh, he also added the, He was also the one who added the Cadillac fins on the back. He wanted those big fins on the back of the boat. Ah. And then, of course, when it went to, C, to series, all that stuff had been established, and then Bill Krieber came in and changed up the nose and gave it four windows instead of the eight and added the sonar domes to either side of the hull and uh, the flying sub bay and uh, a couple other. He, he eliminated the deadlights on the sail and stuff like that. Well, I love the paint job for that, too, because it's unlike, you know, typical submarines that you'll see that basically just sort of have a, a monotone dark gray finish to it. The sea view actually almost looks like a, a shark or a marine animal of some kind. Yeah, it was. Um, let's talk about the TV version. The TV version was painted several different colors. There's a you know there's a debate out there with the uh, with the fan community is that it was a light gray, it was a Dupont color, it was this, it was that. But uh, through my research and uh, talking to uh, a friend of mine in California named Paul Lubliner, who's probably the foremost Seaview expert out there, he uh, we discussed it, and Paul told me. And he's, the colors of the sea view gradually started with a light beige gray with the sail to the decking, and then it was a uh, almost a purplish gray where the limber holes were, and then it was this grayish green brown color with the rest of the hull, and then as you go underneath, the bottom of the boat was a concrete gray, 
that's how she looked, and that's how it was originally uh, filmed that way. And and Bill Kreber uh, was a master with this stuff, and he subtly weathered the boat so it looked like you know the lighter part was on top, but then it got greener as that was that part was submerged. Whatever part was submerged was the gray green kind of color, whereas the rest of it was lighter. And of course, the bottom was the concrete gray, so it did look like a uh, a shark or, or or a dolphin or something to that effect. Yeah, well, it's a beautiful job and very creative, but the weathering is what sells it, right? It gives it that scale, which is beautiful. Oh, beautiful. Uh, that surface runner, 17-foot boat is my favorite. And uh, it's some of those scenes, like we said, it, it looks real. It just looks like a real futuristic submarine. Well, it started and, off with a movie. And as you said, in the first season, it had an eight-window nose. And then it was never really explained, I don't think, in the show. Was it the second season of the show that it changed to a four-window nose? I'm, I'm not sure if I yeah. get that right. No, you're, you're absolutely correct. What had happened is Erwin um, Allen had made the feature film Voyage, and it, and it was a success when he pitched his idea to uh, the networks and ABC bought it. Uh, he saved them a ton of money because he had put these miniatures in storage. He, he developed an outline for a TV series for Voyage to the Bottom of the Sea which, of course, he recast the parts of Admiral Nelson and Captain Crane to uh, Richard Basehart and David Hedison, which, uh, I mean, nothing against uh, Walter Pidgeon. Uh, I, I prefer Richard Basehart's portrayal of uh, Admiral Nelson second to none. I, I, yeah. I, I, I loved uh, Basehart and Hedison. I thought they were phenomenal. Even as was the story start getting stupid during the fourth season, I mean, uh, those two held it up. Uh, they did. They just did a great job. And, and Basehart and... Basehart's such a tremendous actor. I've been catching him on um, different old movies and stuff, and uh, just watching him, what a great actor he was. He was a phenomenal choice. But anyhow, yes, that's, uh, it started out as an eight-window boat. So uh, when Irwin went to produce the TV series, he, he had all the miniatures. Uh, they were all already made, and it saved the studio a ton of money. They're like, oh, okay. And so he had all the miniatures, and he used uh, the eight-window boat for the first season. What had happened is there was no explanation. Uh, you did, you're not missing anything. There, we weren't given any explanation as to why it changed configuration. But what had happened is um, the original boat, it got changed from an eight-window conf uh, configuration to four-window. And uh, basically what had happened is Irwin wanted to get the shows to be moving quicker. He wanted to get to the action much quicker, which was why the flying sub was developed. And mm. William Krieber developed the Flying Sub. And if you remember, William Krieber developed the Gemini 12, which was then turned into the Jupiter 2 by Robert Kinoshita. But William Krieber, he did the changes to the Sea View, made it to the four-window configuration, put the sonar domes on either side. He uh, sealed the deadlights on the sail, and he put the, the Flying Sub bay underneath the nose, which doesn't match up to the set at all. So, I, I mean, <laughs> if, yeah, 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 if you yeah, go online, <laughs> there's it's guys fine. arguing about well how did, how did they do that imagination that's how that's they it. did it <laughs> but there were, we were never given any reason why it, it was done just to update the sea view and, and incorporate the flying sub into the action now yeah that's it's why new and improved that for the second season right <laughs> that's right exactly yeah. yeah well it's a beautiful and, uh, submarine i mean i it's, what a great design they came up with and I, I mean do you have a preference do you like the eight versus the four which one's yours well you know i i was a diehard eight window fan for the longest time uh recently i mean i watch voyage all the time sporadically because i just think it was done just like lost in space these shows were 
especially the first and second season, I should say, of Voyage. They were they were well done. They were more spy oriented in the first season, and the second season came more science fiction with the monsters and stuff. But to, today, I'd say the four window is my favorite. But it's the seventeen footer four window because uh, it's just sleek. It's so sleek looking. And uh, if I may, it was I actually saw that miniature up close or as close as you can get with it hanging from the ceiling. Well, my wife and I had gotten, when we got married back in the early 90s, we went to uh, California for our honeymoon, and we went to um, Planet Hollywood, which was in Hollywood at the time. And I wanted to go because I wanted to see all the the uh, props. Mm-hmm. And so we went there and suffered through the food and whatnot, and they had the, uh, just at the top of my head, sitting right there was the Batwing from the 1989 uh, Michael Keaton Batman film. They had... They did have a screwdriver from Land of the Giants, uh, which mm. is an Irwin Allen production. Yeah, they had a uh, William Shatner tunic. So you know that was it. Uh, I mean, there were other things laying around, but they were the ones that that I can remember to to this day. And then as we were leaving, as we were leaving, I looked over the bar, which was decked out like with a surfboard and some some funny lights. There was the seventeen foot three inch sea view hanging over the bar. Wow. And I, I, I grab, I grab my wife, and she goes, "What?" I said, "Come here, we got to look at the." We were ready to leave, and I so I spent the next twenty minutes just staring at this thing, looking at it, taking pictures underneath it. It just is an amazing miniature. You can't even. It's seventeen feet. Can you call it a miniature at that I point? I was like, so. "Wow, this, yeah." <laughs> it was huge, and it and it and looked beautiful, and uh, oh wow, it was just like a childhood dream come true getting to see this thing up close. Well, so, apparently it's been uh, taken care of. Then that's pretty cool, and and it's not there though anymore. It's you said it's in a sci-fi museum. Some yeah, I believe uh, I believe it's been purchased by the owner of the um, sci-fi museum in Seattle, Washington. I think I think he has he ha- I know he has the uh, the Spindrift, the hero Spindrift from uh, Land of the Giants, which is uh, another amazing miniature. That uh, if I can if I can just go back a minute and say that. Uh, the, uh, another artist who inspired me, uh, Mark DeRay. He is a Land of the Giants expert. And uh, him and Mark and I talked on the phone about the, because we love all this stuff, we talked about the, the Spindrift miniature. And, and Mark's a, an awesome artist. I mean, he's just incredible. And he, he was able to get a, a copy of that, uh, that Spindrift. And he told me about little things that fans wouldn't even know. In fact, that we, we all know that there's one door on one side of the Spindrift that, that the cast was seen coming in and out of and all. But there was actually another door scribed on the other side. Mm-hmm. So at one point, they were going to have doors on both sides of the Spindrift. Mm-hmm. And uh, he said you could still see it to this day faintly. You know, little things like that. that uh, and it's just like the Seaview Sail. Remember we said that it was the eight-window sea view had the deadlights up there and to, for people who don't know what the deadlights they were the lights they were the windows up in the conning tower on the uh, eight window sea view all they did was bondo those up for the for the tv version that's all they did because you could see the outline on them in some footage and even in the restoration process so yeah. that, that was kind of cool yeah <laughs> that's amazing well, I love all of those miniatures. I love that flying sub, too. But I wanted to ask you about special effects shots. One of the iconic shots from Voyage to the Bottom of the Sea is the emergency surfacing, where the, the half of the submarine comes all the way out of the water. It's like, 
I think it's usually like up in the Arctic Circle or somewhere, because I seem to remember there were icebergs behind it or something. And that shot is just a killer. I mean, that is a that is a signature shot. Yeah, that was uh, that, that was done with using the 17 foot miniature back at the Fox's uh, the moat. I think they called it the moat was this pool. I forget the, cor- the correct dimensions and all that, but it was this pool with a with another pool or a hole dug eight feet deep into the bottom of it. And what they did was the CV was launched on rails. And what had happened was they took the 17-footer and they put it down into this moat, into this hole, and they attached a cable outside of the CV to a truck. Uh, when When the driver of the truck was given the cue, he would pull off and then stopped abruptly. And the action caused the model to come up and jut out of the water and crash down in that scene that we see. So that's how that sea view scene was done. It was it, it was incredible. Yeah. That that model wasn't a free floating model. It was it was done on rails. There's a there's a misconception that it was a float that it actually floated on its own. It didn't. It had like uh, almost train tracks, if you want to say, where it would uh, where it would be pulled along in that surface footage. It it, oh. it, it didn't float on its own. Yeah, yeah. I didn't know that. That's interesting. Well, I love that shot. I love all the surface shots. They they really they really spent some time to. And you can almost see the foam in the front of the nose as it's going through the waves. You know. What they did was they had this piping all around the miniature, which would shoot out uh, air. I, I, somebody told me liquid detergent, too, and to, the point to make those bubbles and stuff so it looked like it was foaming as the miniature was uh, was cruising along the surface. And uh, Albie Abbott once, I think he said that uh, the reason that the 17-footer is so large for those surface shots, because nothing else, if it was smaller than that, it wouldn't be believable. So the larger the miniature for the surface shots was the better. Now for the underwater sequences, they didn't need the uh, they didn't need the 17 footer. It, it was unwieldy. They couldn't really work with it underwater, which is why the eight footer was built, which is still a pretty large miniature. Oh yeah. But uh, they didn't need yeah they didn't need the 17 footer underwater. But for those surface shots, for make it believable, they needed that 17 foot miniature. Wow. Man. Yeah. Well. <laughs> Gosh, I feel like we've just barely scratched the surface here, Mark, and I've kept you on here for quite a while. So I think we're going to have to have to ask you, would you possibly down the road be willing to come back on and we can talk some more about this stuff? Uh, I don't want to keep you Oh, sure. I, <laughs> uh, if anybody likes this stuff, sure, I'd love to come back. There's there's so much stuff and it's so so much fun to discuss it with other uh, Irwin Allen fans and special effects fans and modelers. Uh, yeah. You know, if they find this interesting, I I didn't know if anyone found it interesting. I thought oh. that the general world would think it was boring, but I, I, I love it, and I uh, love you it. know, it's infectious. <laughs> it really is. It's it's very infectious. But no, trust me, there's lots of people that love this stuff. So we will definitely ask you to come back on down the road. But before we do say goodbye, I wanted to say again, I just love your Facebook page. The Third Models Facebook page is awesome, and we're going to link to all that stuff, and that's where people can go look at your creation and get some more information about you and your work. But what would you like to tell our listeners who might be interested in becoming one of your clients? Well, they could reach me at uh, the third models at gmail.com or on my Facebook page, and uh, they could shoot me a, a private message or an email. And if they're interested in any kind of buildup, I'm, I'm always taking buildups. And, uh, you know, we do, I keep a line of communication open, and they let me know what they want to do, and I can I could discuss the price ranges and uh, you know what what needs to be done and how to go about it. And if they want something that looks just like the, the real filming miniature, we can do that. If they want something that looks like a real spaceship, we can do that too. Sounds great. 
I encourage everybody to go out there and take a look, whether you're interested in in having Mark build one or not, you're just going to love seeing what he's done because it's beautiful. It's absolutely great. So anything else you'd like to add before we say goodbye? No, just that I'm uh, sincerely humbled by all this. And I hope the information that I've provided in our discussion is is infectious to other fans and uh, and modelers alike. And they enjoy the actual props and miniatures from all the Irwin Allen stuff and uh, makes them go back and rewatches some of the Blu-rays and pick up all this fun stuff. And, you know, I just hope just remains infectious to others as it as obviously it is to you and I. (laughs) I agree with you 100%, and I'm sure it will be. So, great. Oh, man. So, Mark Myers, thanks again for being so, so generous with your time. Sorry about keeping you on so long, but I couldn't stop. It was too great, and I appreciate you being on Alpha Control. It's been a real pleasure speaking with you today and getting to hear all about your models and the stuff you've learned researching the special effects. I know everybody's going to love it. We will hope to get you back on the show down the road, so thank you so much. Well, thank you. It's been a lot of fun. For me, too. All right. We'll talk to you later. Bye. Bye Bye-bye. That was a blast talking with pro modeler and special effects expert Mark Myers. You can tell he's truly passionate about his craft. So let's keep our fingers crossed that he'll make time down the road to come back and talk more Lost in Space and sci-fi modeling. In the meantime, we will be back next week with another episode of Alpha Control, where Kurt and I will get back to reviewing our beloved original Lost in Space. Until then, take care, and we'll see you then. Thanks, fellow Galactic Castaways, for listening to the Alpha Control Podcast. Please leave your comments or questions on our Facebook page, Twitter, or email us at alphacontrolpodcast at gmail.com. Subscribe to the podcast via libsyn.com. That's L-I-B-S-Y-N dot com. Or through iTunes. If you like the show, please leave us a review as well. Thanks again, and we'll see you next week. Same time, same channel.